Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Hello, Otterites. This is episode 173. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis, sitting in the captain's chair. Literally, the chair. Uh, That's true. I've got got the comfy chair over here. I'm I'm very... Yes. I'm kind of rocking... Rocking to the rhythm of the night, as they say. Uh, yes, doing... Francis usually beats me here and uh, takes the couch, but I thought, I got here first today, so you know what, let's switch it up. Okay, yeah, totally fine. I'm like, I knew I couldn't take the big couch, because that's where, where Martin always sits, because he's got his computer set up there so we can see the big screen with the time. Yeah, 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 taking the full-size couch uh, is kind of a prerequisite for running the PC into this whole deal. Yep, yeah. But it's it's not like I'm making you sit on uh, milk crates here. Right, right. Well, yeah, somebody's got to do production work, right? That's right. All right, but no, we're... Uh... This is the third week of the month, so we're going to... We're philosophizing, shall we say. Uh, How is this different from other weeks? <laughs> well, this is the one that's about people. You know, it's always yes. about people. We still don't have a good name for it. We started out as our heroes. We still kind of stick with that, but it could be people you know, face, famous, fake. We've, we've tried it all, yeah, folks. Yeah, we haven't quite... <coughs> I'm always like that big Stan Lee aficionado of alliteration. Oh, love so it. So I always want to do, you know, famous faces and... Or, but not everybody we do is famous, and you know. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to limit ourselves because we want to talk about cool stuff. You know, that's our pledge to you, listeners. Yeah. that we're always going to talk about cool stuff. But the and third week is about a cool person. A cool person, yes. exactly. And somehow <coughs> we've come up with the idea that at least for the rest of the year here, or a little, a little past, I think, we're going to delve into the great philosophers, modern philosophers. Yes. Yeah. Not going backwards. Well, yeah. But we're starting at about. The Descartes. Well, era. even though we, we didn't, we do, didn't Descartes, do Descartes, actually. but we're starting at about that era. Yeah, he's the he is the uh, the kind of the demarcation line between medieval philosophy and modern philosophy. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we should have done him. We didn't. Uh, it was pretty good, but we've uh, we picked several. We didn't pick them all because yeah. uh, we just didn't want to do all of them. But we had to pick the big dogs. You know, the ones. Uh, that they say, what was it, Monty Python said, as empires go, this one's the big one. Yeah. Yes. Uh, philosophers, as these go, these are the big right. ones. And the, and the idea here is that these are the people that their ideas influence the world we live in. Very much so. They, yes. th- their so ideas are the what modern world. So much of what we think about the human condition, which is what we're all about here at Snakes and Otters. We, we talk about that all the time. So much of that is articulated best by these folks. So that's what we're going to talk about this time here. And we're doing this chronologically because there's an evolution over time. Mm-hmm. I mean, <clears throat> we started with Thomas Hobbes, uh, and then we did John Locke, and we're moving to the next guy here, uh, David Hume. Arguably one of the biggest rock stars in the philosophical yes. firmament. Yes. And, and generally, we are naming these episodes after the very funny Bruce's Philosopher's Song from Monty Python. And so that means this one is called David Hume Can Out Consume, which right. is appropriate. Yes, because, because not yes. only does it rhyme, yeah. but he was kind of a big fella. He ended he, up that way. Ended yeah. up that way. Yeah. Uh, if you he go, did, well, well like, none of us started out big. We just kind of got there along the way. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's but very he, uh, he did not like to push himself away from the table, especially when there was a good port. And a pile of cheese. That's as understandable. Sorry, understandable. Yeah. Yeah. You just just so you kind of get the time frame here. David Hume was born in 1711 and dies in 1776. A year we can pretty much remember. Yes. Yeah. Know. So then that that makes him quite the generation removed 
from where kind of where Locke and Hobbes are. Yes, he's the because, next one. He's yes. the one after so that. So he, you know, they're very much on their minds is the disorder of the English Civil War. That's right. Cromwell, all of that. He's past all of that. He's during the Hanoverian times. Uh, he's George the First, George the Second, and George the Third. George the Third, yeah. yeah. So exactly. he's he's in an era where. Scotland's not really independent. It's it's dominated. It's joined yeah. now because it is the Great United Britain. Kingdom. Yeah, it's joined time, into yes. Great Britain. There is some some disorder, some factionalism in Scotland, but it's general, Scotland. Yeah, it's Scotland. It's Scotland. So you you know if you're not cutting someone's head off, you know are you really living? But he's he's in an era of more stability. Generally, yes, but of course, Culloden does happen during his lifetime. Yes, yes. So, I mean, you know, the, the Jacobite the, Revolution does happen, and it's yeah. a big thing. Yes, uh, it, yes. Uh, he dies much post that, and Scotland is firmly under England's thumb by that time, yes. as we know, uh, which we've talked a but, little. But about in general, it's not the same scale of disorder. Well, it's a very localized as what disorder. Hobbes would have lived through. Oh, yeah, because that was that was uh, systemic. Yeah. Over all things, because the monarchy was threatened. Yeah, but that milieu is Im- Im- important. That's why I wanted to bring that in. Is he's not reacting to this complete disaster that is the English Civil War. He's in a much more stable time, and thinking through these same questions of what is the nature of man, and when you arrive at that, then how is man to be governed? That is exactly it. And he, because of his long life. And because of his great proliferation of works, I mean, if you think back to our Thomas Hobbes episode, he basically does Leviathan, and that's that's the big dog. Everything kind of revolves. No around pun intended. It. Yeah, that's, that's that's very true. Very good. I like okay. it. That's right. Yeah. Uh, where and and Locke, of course, who was who was very prolific too. But they don't hold a candle to Hume. Most of, and some of it was because prolific wise. Prolific. Pro, pro, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the what is it called? The a treatise on human nature is very early in his life. But then he ends up writing the history of England. It was like six volumes. Yeah, huge. And huge. it was like it was the bestseller of the day. Yeah, it made his fortune. Even though he was of a noble family, he basically had nothing as a, as a. Oh yeah, they were penniless. They were penniless. As, as I mean, he had man. to become a merchant uh, uh, as a young man uh, while he was in school. School because uh, he didn't have squat. But the he, horrors! Absolutely, couldn't do such a thing like that. Because he's good Scottish background. He's from Edinburgh. I should say yeah. that. That's right. Because he. Uh, uh, I think there's like 12 more R's in that word. <laughs> That's right. Uh, he, but he's very, he's got, he's, you can draw a straight line from Hobbes through Locke to Hume. And he's developing further. They're called English empiricists, all of them, which is kind of what we're going to talk about. Right. Which I find to be odd for him. Please, go ahead. So, because he's so against reason That's right. as a governing principle. Uh-huh. Whereas for an empiricist, generally that's what you think of. That reason is the governing principle. Yeah. Well, the idea behind empiricism, though, is what you are experiencing. Yes. It's how you are basing your uh, your thought. Right. It, it's right. about concrete. Naturally, you yeah. would think it's... Hume is kind of the, the, the exception that proves the rule. He's thinking, well, yes, it's, it's your experience that does it, but it ain't the reason part. It's the it's the other part which we'll get into. Uh, to use a uh, colloquial term, today's colloquialism, it's how he feels about it. It's correct, absolutely. Yes, uh, he's, it's very much uh, uh, not what he thinks about it, what he feels about. In it. fact, he he thinks thinking 
is is flawed. It's easy. It's it's not reasoning, real. Not reason. Reason is correct. Reason itself is flawed. It doesn't usually give you the right answers. Uh, we we agree on things as a society based on our emotions, not on our reason. That's that's the big key. That's it. To to build that that's your basement that you're going to build the Hume house on, is. He's not saying that reason is foremost for human beings. That's correct. He's saying emotions, passions, he would call them, yeah. feelings, are foremost. That's right. They come then, first. Then we think about those feelings. Right. And that's where reason comes in. Reason is the slave to the passions. Very it almost good. sounds like uh, how I would put it, and this may be totally off base, that... Thinking is just our way to justify our passions. Our well, reason is how we that's, justify that's, our passions. That's very human. Yes. Yeah, yes. much so. He would say well, that. And, and then it's it's Shakespearean. You know, it's uh, nothing is evil except thinking makes it so. Yes. You know. Um, and, that's and what I figured. <laughs> as I sat researching this, again, Francis is our guy here who is has studied these more in depth. Um, my research was this morning out on the deck. Uh, Robert may not have researched. I'm doing my research right now <laughs> as we talk. Yeah. But what struck me about this, and, and I find Hume very appealing. Somehow I knew you would. But on the flip side too, you know, as as dedicated nerds, we are very Spockian in our aspirations. That's right. Yeah, he we are seeing any virtue in that. Yeah, to him, that's nonsense. That's a, right. A, a being of reason and logic. Well, that's stupid. You're you don't that's that's doesn't exist. So this this pull that I find myself in, this taffy pull of oh, nice image. Yeah, nice uh, image of wanting to be a Vulcan and and being a being of pure logic because you know what good do emotions do us? And Hume saying. Well, you can do that all you want, but you're stupid for doing so because that's that's you him, yeah. are a person of passion first but what if reason the, is your passion yeah well i mean that's but you're still governed by your passion then. See, he is he is a sensualist by 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 yes. definition and if you might as he says it this way i, I do i do this with my, with my vulcan uh, hand salute up here yeah uh in one of the episodes dr mccoy is accused by spock of being a sensualist and he says you bet your pointed ears i am uh, David Hume and Dr. McCoy are of the same stripe. <laughs> very much. He is He is very much a McCoy. Uh, you must feel it. You work with your heart. You That's what leads you. that. And your yes. your intellect, even though he has a tiring intellect, it's doctor, uh, it's bent towards the good of the emotions that come forth. He's... He's also postulating that emotions, passions themselves, which is larger than just an individual emotion, yeah. those are fluid and change with the moment. But passions themselves are much more stable and are much more normative for how we go about. That's what right. that's what gives us because our again, drive. reason is justifying what you're excited reason about. Reason is a tool that the passions use. is a, is a is a way that that you yeah. would have put that. because the passions are forefront in human nature. Because he's 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 not saying this is the way it should be. He's just saying this is what you are, right? And not ought because he has very definite yes. thoughts about what ought is. Is correct? The is an ought problem is very influential in yeah, his because, thinking, and, and, which is actually very. It's, that's one of his brilliances. He recognizes we're going to struggle with what we should do. 
See, and this is this is where I always struggle with a lot of philosophers, uh, especially those that tend to be like him. Whether it's uh, you want to talk about it as an empiricist, I can only believe in what I can see, taste, and touch. Right. Or as a sensualist, which is you know, you know, as we talked about in the last episode, uh, almost hedonistic. Yeah. It seems to take away all underpinning of what is moral. Yes, you because are, you're correct. Yeah. There, if there is no objective standard, because he would probably deny any object objective standard in, in that mm-hmm. sense that we normally think of it today. Oh, you're absolutely right. He does. So when you do that, how do you define what is good? Except that what you say it is. Well, that's right. What yes. you make it say. He, he, the word he uses is custom. Right. We but, basically agree. But why? Why Why do we agree? What makes it so that, that we agree he's, on that? He's a sentimentalist, is what it's called. And sentimental, of course, has a modern connotation that isn't really matching what he's talking about. Right. It's fairly negative considered today. Yeah. But what he's talking about is we are moral because of the way being immoral makes us feel, essentially. Well, that's an interesting because, argument. Because of our yeah. feelings about, you know, why am I not a horrible human being? Well, because I feel that I shouldn't hurt someone else. See, and then, like, you talk about how people are, you know, what is yeah, a sociopath? It's a person with no feeling for anyone else. Right. So, which is missing but, something. But, yeah, so the whole very, when you start with the whole definition of, well, why am I not a horrible person? It's like, well, how do you define what is a horrible person versus a good... There's no... So, there's an implicit standard that he's not recognizing. And it's not just custom, in my opinion. I mean, a lot of it is ingrained by the time you grow up so that it feels like custom. That's what he's talking about, yeah. Yeah. But, that would imply that if you took... If you looked at other societies, they, they would have, because of totally different customs totally different morals and expressions of morality. Yet that's not really the case. We have Some, similar but, but we have not, similar yeah. morality. And obviously it's not 100%. Yeah. But we have similar morality in culture after culture. You know, just what every culture is going to say, yeah, you can't go around killing somebody just cuz you don't like them. Now, you know, obviously there've been periods of time where that is not the case. <laughs> sure. Um, but most people would still recognize, yeah, that's a bad thing, even though that kind of stuff happens, right? Um, so most people recognize, yeah, you know, I really think it's a bad thing if you sleep with my wife. You know, things like that. Or, yeah, I know my wife is going to cut off my, mm, if I sleep with somebody else. Uh, generally speaking, you know, there are polyamorous cultures in that sense, although I think they're a vast minority. Yeah. It's an yeah, oxymoron, a vast minority. Yeah, but, it, it, there, uh, there are there are familial theft. implications of those things. Yes, well, and then there's theft, you know. Yeah. That is almost a universal, that you don't steal, but that is immoral right. and wrong. So, that's, what I, that's one of the things I always go back to, is that, you know, you're building your house, your philosophical house, on standards that you deny. You know, you're, build, you know, you're building it on concrete, yeah. but you say you're not. But if you're not building on that concrete, you're building on shifting sand. So if you deny Sorry, this, did you say that again? why do you Sorry, keep asking me that? You. What I I am not saying the word I thought, but 
But if you, you know, it just seems like if you're building, if you if you deny these these standards that are relatively universal, and I know that's an oxymoron too, mm-hmm. um, you're building your argument on a house of, uh, on a foundation of sand, and that's rarely recognized, in my opinion. But again, that's just I like to point that out. Well, and here's where Robert Hume would be. I don't know. That would be something you would disdain in him. But I know one of your other arguments uh, on the philosophers we've we've covered is they don't always think things through. Right. Hume deliberately was attempting to navigate that middle course mm-hmm. and try to find a way to a, an end point that was not extreme because he did not want to be extreme. Right. Now I, I I'm not necessarily I don't disdain him because I think he, a lot of what he says I would agree with. But I would agree with what he says probably for different reasons than he makes those statements, <laughs> uh, which is what, what is I find fascinating well, as well. And one of the things I think that is important to remember Hume is what is what was groundbreaking and revolutionary in the 1700s did not have the benefit of the scientific knowledge we have today, specifically with regards to psychology in general, because David Hume is all about nurture. Everything is nurture. There is no such thing as nature for him. Right. It is irrelevant, uh, and it is. Uh, it is yeah, he would follow on with the tabula rasa argument. Absolutely. Essentially, yeah. Yes. I mean, he's saying you are a, a sum of your experience, a bundle yes. of perceptions and experiences. The bundle yes. was the word he used. Yes, he yes. used that uh, bundle of. Uh, I forget where it was here, but it was uh, uh, bundle of experiences is a good way to put it for yeah. uh, for us. But for someone who sees passion as above reason, he ends up being very much a person who drove science. Because again, he is emphasizing you've got to observe this. And so the scientific method of observe, repeat, observe, repeat, and all that is very much part of this Locke tradition. That's right, because every, since everything is about obs- is, is about what is touchable and seeable, it's also therefore observable, it, either directly or indirectly. And he speaks a long time about deduction and induction. Yes, he's totally against inductive reasoning. Right, yes, absolutely. Uh, he thinks it's all about, he must be deductive on that. And this kind of leads him to that, and we talk a lot, a lot about free will, which he thinks is, shall we say, bogus? No, no, he he defended free will. Yeah, but it's it's different for him. He, yeah. he doesn't see it. He doesn't see it always as the same thing. We'll get into that. Well, in a yeah, you because I, I don't know that he uses this, uh, but he, he says it about reason. You know, you can make the argument that for a sensualist, you are a slave to your passions, and just as he says, reason uh, is and ought only to be the slave of passions. So he recognizes that as a concept. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether he would apply that right. to and himself. Your, your reason serves to have you think about your passions as a as a scaffolding for how you think about your your enthusiasms and your passions. And so therefore that's the the problem of induction and inductive reasoning is just because you observed it so many times doesn't mean it's going to happen again. You, you can't, that's the flaw of reason. It's because it's always possible it might not. Yeah. Which seems rather, I mean, from a practical standpoint, it seems rather ridiculous at times. 
but he's arguing from a philosophical standpoint, saying right. it's always it's not impossible. Right. That's, that's all. It, all you need is just that one possibility out of a million that it might be different, and the whole argument falls apart. Right. You you can't say that the sun will come up tomorrow just because you have experienced the sun coming up every morning of your life. However, that then led to the science of, well, okay, we can predict because of mathematics that, yes, the sun will come up tomorrow. Which well, it, you still can't guarantee that. Until it explodes. Right. Or <laughs> the second coming or whatever. Yeah. Uh, or that you die before the sun comes up tomorrow. And for you, the sun never comes up again. Uh, yeah, so... And I get that, but I think most people, when we talk about reason, and we, to reason things out, we recognize that there are, it's a rare instance where we can come up with anything that is truly an absolute. So, for instance, thou shalt not kill is not technically an absolute. No. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's not actually "thou shalt not kill." It's "thou shalt not, not murder." murder. Yes. Yeah. Is the best translation. It's of phrased that word. in an absolutist language, but yes. it is not because it absolute. sets the ideal. Right. Exactly. Because and, it, and that's it, what reason often is talking about when we talk about morals. We're talking about the ideal, not the actuality, because moral philosophers would recognize, well, of course we're going to fall short. That's the whole reason why we have moral philosophers. <laughs> we know we're going to fall short. <clears throat> And that we're not perfect. Uh, so, because if we were, if we were all perfect, passion could rule everything. But because we're not, there has to be reason. And he recognizes there are two types of knowledge as well. One of which is the mathematical type, and the other are the sensual types. So he recognizes there are such things as that can be absolutes. In the, in the case of mathematics, two plus two will always equal four. That's correct, but. He, Unless it's he sees you know, that base three, yeah, he sees that that's essentially an irrelevant type of knowledge. He it it, it, it doesn't it's not helpful when it comes to humanity, right? And that's that's because that's what he's interested in, in talking about. Well, yeah, and in doing that though, he is he's then driving scientific inquiry. Absolutely, he's, he's providing a basis. By so which, you've said that several times, because I'm not familiar with that line of reasoning. Because again. I'm real bad about doing my research ahead of time. Yeah. So give me an example of that because just saying that does not prove that to me. Good. Because I, because I don't have the, 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 the background for it. So who is looking at Hume's arguments and saying, well, by God, I'm going to do this? Well, again, because he's saying this problem of induction that you can't in, uh, do use inductive reasoning to come up with a predictable system, you must observe it. Right. I get he's saying that. Right. So that that becomes what all of the empiricists do is this, you know, things must, to have knowledge, you must observe and repeat and all that. I get that. that. I get that. Okay. You're not linking the two. You're giving me correlation, not causation. Oh, Okay. Because they could have come to these these ideas contemporaneously, or he could say, "Oh, you know what? These guys are here saying that you should observe things." I agree with that, and that could fuel him. So he's, he's pre-scientific method. So he's kind of a proto in, of of all this. Well, just because he's pre does not mean he's the first. 
Oh, no, not at all. And then he's saying that, Martin is saying that he's driving it. To me, that means all of these scientists are looking at what Hume is saying and changing their methodology. Oh, no, no, no. That would, that would not and be that's, the case. And that's where I'm, I'm, I'm... You're hearing that. Yeah, right. that, well, that's... Yeah. That's, what's being, yeah. that's kind of what's being said in my opinion. It, he's promoting it. He's promoting that idea at a time where it was not always universal that... Right, no, and about. I get that, because this is, this is when that sort of his, stuff is coming right. to be. He called himself the Newton, the Isaac Newton of, of, huma, of human science. Not pretentious at all. No, that's like, what he wanted to be. It's what but he, he was to be. connected to Newton he and, too. They were friends. They were, they were friends. friends. So he recognized that he's he's using that same. There's that because Newton is all about that mathematics and, and how you prove these sort of things. That he's wanting to take that same system systematic approach, use it approaching it to humanity, and that's what he is perhaps unknowingly, and I think this is what Martin's point is. He is giving an imprimatur to a process that is still in its infancy but ultimately comes to dominate everything. He's one of those early adopters that, that puts forth saying, it's got to be this way, folks, because of his hard, hard reliance upon empiricism. You have to measure it. Therefore, it, that, and that ultimately... I, I, I get the argument. He, I, he's not the only one, but the, all those British empiricists, this starts at Hobbes, Lays it all down. I'm, I'm just looking for the show me that he's driving. This is all I was getting at because I get because you guys are both telling me what I already know. Mm-hmm. I get that he's saying that. I want to know who did he influence? Uh, yeah. Newton. Newton. Well, and and Newton being one of those cornerstone guys that the scientific method is built on. Did Newton get the idea from him? Is is, is the is the point? Or are they, you know, is this one of those things where, again... I think, I think it's a cross-pollinization okay. like he's talking about. Okay, yes. so that, to me that's a little different. And, and again, I'm not trying to get stuck on this he's driving it. Okay. But that just, to me, yeah. Newton needed not... more exploration. Because cross-pollinization, to me, sounds a lot more realistic and likely than one guy driving well, and, the adoption of the... And the and perhaps, of that perhaps is... driving is the wrong word because it is, it's going both directions. Hume is looking at what Newton is doing, mm-hmm. and that's influencing his direction of, oh, we can't know anything until we're observing it. That's right. Sure, sure. And, and Hume, and this might be a little bit of a reach on my part, but I'm probably safe in this. Hume articulates all that in ways that are revolutionary in many ways that Newton's not worried about. He's worried about doing the work. Right. And well, he's a philosopher, so that's yeah, to be expected. That's, that's, I think you're probably safe. That's in, why yeah. that you, you can look to, to, to Hume as being one of those uh, groundbreaking folks because right. Newton is doing the work that he's talking about at right. the same time and, together. And Hume is validating Correct. to his audience right. Newton's work. Exactly. They were, they were, where, where the audiences might not be the same, but with Hume's validation that becomes a direction to then take philosophy of Mm -hmm. stop making stuff up and let's do things that we're really observing in our philosophy and that's kind of the fruit of empiricism which you know in many respects scientific method if it weren't for empiricism wouldn't even exist we wouldn't have thought of it that has to be the roots of that if it's all about measuring things well then let's measure and the next thing you know we realize oh we can take that tool just like newtonian mathematics and go to completely different places. I, yeah, I would say that the the scientific method has probably existed for centuries, 
in, in this respect. People wouldn't have called it that. It wouldn't yeah. have been so formal because... But when you... <clears throat> but everyone who was ever burned as a witch because they were putting together potions mm -hmm. uh, to help cure the sick in their village yeah. was using the scientific method or had benefited from it. Sure. Because people, either she or people before her figured out what combination of herbs and whatever else would help certain conditions. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Yeah. So it's, it's observation, it's, trial and error. Exactly. That's exactly it. So you know, he is definitely building on the past. I will. I will grant you. That. Oh yeah, it's not. It's and not he a, did not invent the science. He oh, just no. formalized it. It's uh, formalization is the word. It. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. I don't say he invented it. Yeah. It formalizes is the better word because. Yeah. But I find it interesting though your uh, statement earlier about looking at the mathematics side and wanting to apply that to humanity, mm -hmm. uh, which is I because. And again, I'm not trying to be the curmudgeon in all of this. I feel like oh, I am. Oh, curmudge. Curmudge. It's okay. But it, I find that a, f a fascinating uh, approach if that's really what he was doing. And uh, not that I doubt you, I'm just speaking. Well. If that's really what he's doing, because that seems to be a very um, odd thing for somebody who says we are driven by passions to do. Because you're talking about, you know, systematizing mm -hmm. humanity. Yeah. In other words, to me, that sounds very dehumanizing, taking passions out of it. Because well, if you reduce everything to a formula, yeah, which is essentially what we're talking about when we're talking right. about ma mathematics, where do passions come in? But that's exactly the question he's trying to answer. That's exactly it. That's what he's, that's that's where that's he what is. fascinates him. That's that's that, that's the rabbit he's constantly. Well, he chasing. might have been a very smart guy then. It's yeah, called, well, that's one of the reasons it's he's so influential. Compatible, compatible. Francis could probably say it better. Compatibility, compatibilityism, or compatibilism. Yeah, compatibilism. Compatibilism, yeah. because that's what he's trying to reconcile. A world in which there's all these physical laws that we're exploring through our observations and experiences, and that Newton is categorizing, with the idea that we are making decisions based on passion being served by our reason. Free will. Liberty. These concepts, he's justifying why those still exist, even though we're exploring a world that we know has gravity and, you know, water boils at X. Laws of nature. Yes, these laws of nature, these deterministic systems, but we still can make our own decisions. He's trying to explore that very question. The man, the man is uh, amazingly, as we've spoken about, prolific, and his his he's well broad on the way he talks about things. Uh, we 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 talked a little bit about in the last episode. He's not just interested in the nature of humanity. Uh, he's interested in things like aesthetics. Mm -hmm. What's beautiful? I mean, literally, uh, he, he wrote a thing on 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 the standard of taste. It literally talking about that, you know, he recognizes that no, he says no rules can be drawn up about what is a tasteful object, meaning beauty. He just says you can't, you can't do that. It's that goes back to that. He's at his heart, Hume is a skeptic. Yes. About everything, and that if you wanted, if you had to pick one word to describe him, I think that's where yeah, that's the, where the you, you would have to lie. Yes. So. 
he is less proscriptive than we might be comfortable with at times, I think. Because it, he's one of those that is very quick to say, nah, I don't believe that. So, that's what got him in trouble. Well, right, that's right. Because right, yeah, right. he ends up critiquing religion at a time which is yeah, you just not a good that. thing yeah. in the 1700s. Now, he's able to tap dance because everybody likes old David. You know, <laughs> come on, have a, have a turkey leg with us here uh, and sit down and, and talk. Bring you another glass. That's right, bring another glass. Because of his his outgoing personality. Uh, and Which is not something you expect in somebody who's a philosopher. That's right, but he, he was. Of course, he's also he's a writer, and he's written this history book that everybody's read. Right. So he's got this rock star quality to him at the time where everybody wanted to be his buddy. I wonder his what friend. they called that in the 1700s, because obviously it wouldn't have been rock star. Yeah, I know, that's, that's a very good question. I wonder what that would you know, the celebrity of the time. Yeah, the literati, yeah. I guess, maybe. or I think the literati would probably not be. <coughs> that's one of the things, he's kind of like Voltaire in that, because everybody knew him, everybody read him, and everybody thought he was all yeah. that, and they're contemporaries, by the way. And that's a lot of what kept him inoculated, how'd you like that word, mm-hmm. uh, against the times that could so, have made him... Well, he, had, he had a lot of friends who stood up for him and right. said, oh, no, he's just kind of a deist. He's not really an atheist. You yeah, know? right. Well, he did believe in God. Because I, I, there's a piece here where he's talking about, uh, it's not God probably as we would, probably more of a Unitarian type, because he yeah. very heavily un, uh, influenced them. Yep. Uh, he made an argument for God uh, from design. So, you know, the, the clockmaker uh, mm-hmm. definition of God, yes. uh, like a Thomas Jefferson yes. would believe. Um, but, so, but at the same time, Jefferson wanted to have his books excluded from the colonies, but Madison was a huge fan. Right, right. I mean, he's, he's, he's provoking all these different reactions in people. Uh, like Voltaire, he's very influential in the U.S. He supported American independence. Well, being Scottish, I, I would yeah, I would think so, yeah. So he yeah. was he you know, he didn't want to settle as a Whig or a Tory either way. Um, but he did he did favor American independence and he thought so, it would be a great experiment. So I think uh, this is not a summation cuz I don't want to end the, the episode, but you know, I I I guess what comes to mind uh, with Hume is just damn it man, piss or get off the pot, make a decision. Yeah, I mean, there's some of that. Oh, yeah, because he's, he's been he's criticized a lot for that yeah. because he he brings up a lot of questions that he doesn't try he doesn't completely answer. Well, and see, and that's that's where I'm going to. So because you know, it's one thing to postulate these things, and this is the danger when you start postulating these ideas. Some little asshole like me is going to come along and say, "Well, you know, if you do that, then this." It's like, well, yeah. It's like, well, then how are you supporting this? It's, you know, it's like, well, it's like on the internet now, if you say, oh, I love oranges, it's like, really? So why do you hate apples? Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> that's it's not what I'm trying to do, um, but I guess I'm looking for a broader, uh, a more full explanation of the philosophy, philosophical ideas that he's had, and maybe he's just one of those guys that likes putting out the questions, but I like guys who also answer the questions. I wish I could get my arms around his, his work as well as we probably should to do him justice uh, in, a, in an hour. Well, yeah, but you need a guy that is like this, though, to yeah. ask the questions. Very much so, because, and because he is he's highly articulate. Yeah, uh, so... And uh, he's he's very, very... He's subversive in many ways. Uh, I mean, he almost got he almost got kicked out of the Church of, Church of Scotland uh, at one point because they called him an atheist. And it, it, he was he's seen as religion, religiously unto, intolerant people did not understand his philosophy. 
Uh, and that's hard in this era to be able to be successful. But to be realistic, though, the common man never understands the writings of the philosophers. The difference today is that everybody has a voice, whereas everybody didn't 250 years ago, or 270 years ago when he died. Uh, now he made it into 76, so, he had, so we'll say 250 years ago. Uh, so... If not everybody had a voice, you know, there are fewer people to listen to and evaluate. And for the most part, people, most people didn't read. So you had a much smaller uh, set of people who would argue about these things and go back and forth. So, uh, you know, somebody like Hume today would get lost in the shuffle uh, just because he's just one more voice. It's really hard to be a modern philosopher. Yeah. He was he, he was, was certainly yeah. unique and, and an oddball in his time and was yes. comfortable with that. He kind of reminds me a little bit of Chesterton in the sense that he sounds like one of those guys that you know you just you know great to hang around, have a beer with, and and mm-hmm. and, and and you know have a big meal with because you know Chesterton liked his he, he didn't like to push away from the mm-hmm. table either. Yes, yes, uh, and he was full of wit and great sayings. And and I I compared him. Uh, Favorably to our friend Marcus Aurelius today as well. Yes, yes. Uh, another person who is comfortable being an oddball. Yes, comfortable or being comfortable a, being the uh, doesn't have to think like everyone else does, and is I okay would, with for that. Marcus. I was he's, he's comfortable being the balloon pricker. Yeah, or popper, shall we say? He popper. would prefer the word prick. I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> uh, but that would be Hume as well. Yeah. I mean, and Hume was okay with that. Yeah. He was, I get the point and, of his... And it was so... And like you said, it's so much harder in the 1750s and 60s and all this to be that oddball than it is today. Right. Because it's very easy, especially you know when you're an intellect... You go to Harvard, you're an intellectual, and he has positions mm-hmm. in government. So it's not like you know he is... Uh, yeah. He's got a platform. So when his ideas start getting discussed, and he's like, "Well, what do you mean by this?" It's like, "I don't know," uh, you know, which is what really seems to be the 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 ultimate response. If he's not answering the questions that he's that he's asking, or that he's not worked himself out to answer the questions, and maybe his attempts can't be done. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure that his attempts can be done in a way that that harmonizes the way he wants to. Because uh, mm-hmm. I think there's, because I like his middle of the road approach, but he's also a bit of an absolutist on certain things. You know, passions over reason, and yeah. I'm not saying that people aren't pat- more passionate than reason, reasonable. So I've got a, a question for you, but I think Francis, we got to go bourbon break first. Bourbon yes. break yeah, first, and then yes. then I got uh, uh, something for you that you talked about. So go ahead, Francis, man. You well, you I mean. Well, guess uh, we all have some, don't we? Yes. Martin, yes. you got something. Oh, you're yes. still, I don't see yours from here. Yeah. I'm still working on the old granddad, uh, 114, uh, because that's that's potent stuff, folks. It yes, really that is. is not something you, you uh, you know, just shoot down. Uh, that's, uh, yeah. You I don't mean, do jello sots with the with no, old granddad. No, no, no. It's, uh, and like I said, I've, I've had mine with a couple of... Sh- uh, Couple pieces of ice on it, which makes it a little bit more mellow. Yes, like that word, but it's it uh, definitely does. Uh, it's it's something that uh, I, I'm I'm definitely going to go back to, but I got to be careful because it will give me a headache, as I've said before. Yes. yes. Uh, so I'm, I've got the uh, uh, went to Martin's Elijah Craig. Oh, good for you. Uh, which you know, uh, oh, okay. when we recorded at uh, Studio R last month, uh, 
we had the bot had a bottle there for the first time on the show, and uh, loved it. Yeah. Loved it. This really is Elijah Craig Spa Badge, ninety four yes. proof. Yep, it's the exact same bottle that I had at my place. Bjorn says that's a twelve year. Oh, is it? I didn't, like, did not catch wow, that. Wow, that's really long. It doesn't say that, but uh, uh, again, Bjorn working at a local liquor store, he's being educated in all these topics, and yes, uh, it's very smooth and mellow. Um, it's not a whole lot on the tongue. I find this, you know, like on the gums and uh, you know the side, a mm-hmm. um, little bit of sweetness to it. Uh, it's just very nice. It's a, it's a uh, almost like a casual kind of flavor, you know. Uh, you drink it and you can enjoy it, but it doesn't smack you in the face. It's like here I am, which the the old granddad one fourteen that one does. To me, that one just is like just shouts from the rooftop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here I am, yeah, which time. is not necessarily a bad thing, but honestly, I think I like the the, the more mellow, uh, mm-hmm. subtle. Mm-hmm. Uh, old granddad to me just wasn't as subtle, mm-hmm. and, and I like the subtle flavor here. I am. Uh... Still working on a, a little snort of the Green River, which again yes. I, I do like. Uh, I feel like it's a good complex flavor with a touch of licorice to it. It's pretty good stuff. Excellent, excellent. Well, but you had so back to Hume. You had something, uh, Mark. I wanted to. You brought up a word. I think that was important. Design. Yes. All right. So he is arguing against design. Really? Because no, no, here, he's arguing for it. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, he's arguing against it. Uh, he's arguing that no matter what you do, you are still making suppositions based on reason that you didn't experience. He's saying there could have been a lot of designs that all failed. Just because this one works doesn't mean there is an existence of... You're, you are exactly right. So I apologize. Well, uh, and because but I'm, there is a piece here in the in the uh, stuff I was reading that he makes an argument for God from design. But that's not... I, I was looking... If it's what I'm thinking here, it's actually from uh, Encyclopedia Britannica that says that, not Hume. There, there, uh, if it's the thing I'm reading here, uh, you got to go to the second one under here where he talks about it... Uh, uh, trying to find it is saying only, that only experience and observation can be our guide into making inferences about the conjunction between events. However, according to Hume, and this was a quote from him, we observe neither God nor other universes, and hence no conjunction involving them. There is no observed conjunction to ground an inference either to extended objects or to God as unobserved causes. So um, he he has he has issues. He's criticized this arg- the argument in his dialogues concerning natural religion, suggesting that even if the world is more or less smoothly functioning system, this may only be the result of chance permutations of particles falling into temporary or permanent self-sustaining order, which thus has the appearance of design. So he's a doubter of that. And you're well, exactly then right. this Wikipedia quote here, or not quote, but line is totally false then. Because it says his views on philosophy of religion, including his rejection of miracles, and the argument from design for God's existence, uh, unless he's saying the rejection of yeah, it, he miracles rejects, and yes. the rejection of yes. Yes. that is a poorly worded phrased, sentence. Poorly worded sentence. Exactly yes, right. being now a words, you know, nearly professional wordsmith, that is a very poorly. That's, right. that's a phrase. What was it? He said hammer the vile phrase. It's justified. It's a vile phrase. Yes, yes, right. that is very vile. Yes, because yes, he is rejecting the notion that just because 
our system that we live in seems incredibly rational and ordered and efficient doesn't mean that that wasn't chance. Yeah, you cannot and, discount that possibility. Yeah, in our experience, and that's enough for him. when we create a an ordered system, it's being designed, but we can't observe this whatever happened, so we don't know. Well, and, you know, that's one of the things that um, um, the whole everything is a random happenstance mm-hmm. is so unrealistic and far-fetched and ludicrous to me. Right. Because, not just because I believe in God first, but the whole idea that everything is, is happenstance, uh, it just, to me it takes more faith than anything else. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, it's one of those things that it takes out any, which I guess would actually supports his argument for yeah. Um, Denying miracles, uh, yeah, because well, that's not what I mean. No, uh, it, because it takes out any all any and all possibility of objective truth. Uh, that everything is then relative. Yeah, uh, that there is not there's no such thing as a moral good because a moral good is a would be a totally human made up construct, which he would probably agree with. Yeah, he would say which, that. Yeah, that's, where I would have yeah. problems. But also, let me see if I can get this train of thought back to where I had it, because I, I kind of derailed myself here. Uh, yeah, managed to keep my metaphor consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we're talking about crap. I, ha- I had something that was really good. I know, I hate it when that happens. It was really good that I wanted to say. Um, we interrupt ourselves sometimes. We do. Or each other. Uh because you were just talking about, you were just talking yeah. about, what were you, would you, before you sat down and... That, that basically, and I'll just say, it, I'll just put it this way. He would not have a problem with your faith, but he would, to him, design would be a part of your faith. And he would reject the notion that you could rationally come to the note the idea okay. that there was an intelligent design one of the things I, all right so it, that actually even though it sparked what i remember, remember what i was going to say that actually wasn't related to that particular aspect it was something we were talking about earlier though yeah because uh, this is what you had mentioned there you're talking about how you just because the sun has come up every day of our lives before now how can we know that it's going to come up tomorrow which on its surface yes that's a valid argument because nobody knows the future yeah. Right, and that's even what he's the, saying. Even though, much with a time. very high degree of probability, we can predict that yes, that will happen. Yes, I mean, it, yes, uh, it could explode but, tonight. But, but that to me says, well, I don't really believe in, in the scientific method because I have observed, repeated, and observed and repeated that the sun will come up tomorrow. Therefore, the sun will come up, or that the sun has come up every morning. Therefore, the sun will come up tomorrow. Yeah. But that go. But Hume was, as as I said, at the heart a skeptic. So he's going to deny his own denial of denying <laughs> ad infinitum. He will go. Well, but, uh, yeah, that's, he say. But yeah, but you don't really know. Yeah, but you don't really know. Even though the rational, reasonable person would say, well, of course we know. And even though he probably wouldn't have used the word term scientific method, he's still going to be the I think the gadfly that says, no, you think you know, but you really don't. You can't know the future. So therefore. 
you, you know, can't prove this. You can't prove. Well, yeah, that you can't prove the future. And that's what. Absolutely, I would agree with that's that. That's what yeah. he's arguing. I here. would agree with that. You His skepticism is the future. Tied up with that uh, because you can't prove something that has not yet yes. happened. And, and keep in mind, he's working from, you know, trying to delve into the nature of how we think about things. Sure, sure. So, and and, now, and as far as that goes, I agree with much of what he says. Yeah. Uh, because how we react and respond pretty much proves a good deal of what he believes about passions oh, growing yeah. us. Yeah, if, if you just pay attention to the national discourse at now or at any other time in our At history, any time, yes. Uh, and you'll see that passion comes first, absolutely. Yes. And reason is sometimes a rare commodity. Well, and to be fair, because again, like I said, I agree with much of what he says when it talks when we talk about this, about, about actual behavior. Um... Without passion, life is meaningless. That's it. Yes, that's right. Uh, I would he's, absolutely yeah, agree he's, with he's that. Very, very clear. About because that. it passion is what helps give meaning, but meaning, in and of itself, would be one of those things that he would almost have to deny, because that's when we get into the reason of things. Yeah. But passion without meaning, to me, is just as he, or even more pointless than Martin's. Uh, Quote from uh, the last episode about the the you know the the monkish uh, yeah, qualities. The, the monkey yeah, being an ascetic just turns you into you know a harebrained uh, enthusiast for those things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so hard, hardens the heart, and you're no fun. Right. Uh, but so I agree. Yeah, passion gives, but you know if it doesn't give meaning for you to want because meaningless passion is just that meaningless. You you grow bored with it. Right. So, you know, it's kind of why pornography is as bad as it is, uh, is, is because of this, is that it's never enough. Correct. And that's the... Because that's, there is no meaning in it. Because there is no meaning, we, our brains think, well, if I have more of it, then, then there will be meaning. Yeah, and that goes back... Or if it's more extreme, there will be meaning. Biochemicals in the brain. Yes. Which Hume would have not understood... No. Or had any knowledge of, but he's nailed it pretty much exactly right, just from observation of human behavior. That well, I don't know why chemically it works that way, but this is the way. Yeah, he I probably s- wouldn't even understood yeah. chemically because back then it still would have been alchemy most likely. Well, yeah, yeah. but he, he he's a he's a keen observer of humanity yes. and our behaviors, uh, and that's what leads him to be the skeptic that he is. And in many respects, I think, and I, and I want to I want to give us all a chance to kind of finish this up here a little bit, but I think in many respects, David Hume is the father of so much of the way we think in modern times here, because and some of this is American, but we're very skeptical of most things. I think skepticism is a common thread in modern society in many ways. Nothing can be that good. Nobody can be that good. Nobody could be that powerful, blah, blah, blah. We, the skepticism is an undercurrent that we have, and I think a lot of that we owe to David Hume for articulating it. Skepticism well, or we be, can blame him for it. Yeah, I mean, Perhaps. it can be a I mean, very powerful thing and a healthy thing, provided that once you see evidence, you move past your skepticism. Well, ultimately, that's but what... But how can you know? Yeah, if you're the extreme skeptic that he is, everything is 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 is, skeptic, is subject to skepticism. Right. So I mean, it's kind of the where he he's he runs in circles, ultimately. Yeah. Because for every time, because you're right. right, we would agree with that. But that's a very 
reasoned argument. Right. And just it's because you be have an, an example or enough examples that you might think, okay, I accept that. Yeah. But Hume's going to come along and say, well, how do you know? The next time it might be different. But if I'm skeptical the sun will come up tomorrow, but then it does, I can't still be skeptical about it. Well, I have that to accept day. That's I experienced that's it. Fact, yeah. Right. Well, I experienced it. I have to accept it. I can still be skeptical about the day after. Well, yes. So, well, I think yeah, most when we talk about the sun will come up tomorrow, we are talking about the metaphorical tomorrow as opposed to today. Because remember, there's three points in time. Past, present, and future. And that's how we think of them. Yeah. The, you know, thousands, millions, billions of years, whichever your time frame yes. is, of past is still a point to the human mind. Yeah. So is tomorrow. Even though there are potentially an infinite number of tomorrows, we only think of it as one. We express it as one. You know, yeah. we don't say tomorrow right. and the next day and the next day. Yeah. And, and Hume's position is no matter what you experience today... You right. cannot rationally predict tomorrow. Right. And, and, and I, which, again, I get that. But every time we, we go around with something like this, and you say, well... And yeah, we do. And, well, I'm just, even just discussing how, how he would approach things, we, we get right back to, well, nope, sorry, David. Can't be sure of that, because tomorrow might be different. Or the next time <laughs> might be different. Yeah. So it's sooner or later, it, yeah. You, it, it's, in it's, many ways, you're running a, it's a hamster wheel. Yeah. In many ways, his level of skepticism is a circular argument, mm -hmm. and that the only surety I have is that he's going to be skeptical. Apparently, well, that's right. Because sooner or later, but even then, maybe he won't. <laughs> right. Sooner or later, there has to be an off ramp to this for right. for practical applications. Right. And I see. And it seems like he's looking for a practical application. But he doesn't quite seem to be able to take the step to be able to say, okay, well, this does, is how things work. He but does, he, he does, does talk eventually. About, yeah, eventually, when he talks about morality, he does talk about morality kind of like as the break that is applied to our passions. Right, that, but it's that, just custom. Well, that's, that's correct. It is the reason morality is valid in his mind, or even virtuous, is because we've agreed that it must be. And there is truth to that. Yes. Because we all have to, whether whether we call it absolute truth mm -hmm. uh, or just what we accept as, as we, we are going to agree that this is this is our standard. Yeah. But they're not mutually exclusive ways of looking at things. No. no because no. all society rests on the mutual acceptance of the social contract. Yeah, to use and a Lockean phrase. That's yes. exactly right. And and you know, I love the, the whole idea of the social contract because it is to me, I, it's the best way of explaining how a society is built. Because as soon as enough people disagree that this is how things work, or that I believe that you know everybody's going to keep their promises and blah blah blah, uh, once they become the ultimate human, <laughs> yeah, uh, that you know, I don't I don't believe that you know that you're going to uh, keep us safe. Right. Or I don't believe that you're not going to come in and rape and pillage and murder, uh, which then makes it every man for himself. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's you know it, that yeah, that's exactly right. And what he would call that custom, the social contract right. being custom, and, and it, it, very much it is. And, and Christopher Hitchens talks a lot about this, uh, and and he sees it as a virtuous thing. I'm not. I don't think that he's wrong. Uh, he he simply Hitchens attempts to divorce the. That virtue of the agreed upon morality we have from its religious underpinnings. 
uh, he sees them as unnecessary or even harmful. I certainly would not agree with his right. second part of that. Uh, well, I disagree with the first. With part. the first, I, I can I can understand that. I can understand him saying such a thing in good faith. <laughs> There's well, a pun for you. Well, yeah, because because of where he's coming from. Yeah. Um, but from my perspective, though, is that when you do that, when you when you distill those core underpinnings of society mm-hmm. to mere custom, that's right. You have, I think, a much more uh, flammable, uh, explosive. That is a very good way of society. It. Yes. Because again, everything's changeable. Everything is changeable. Nothing is sacred. immutable. Nothing is sacred. That's right. Immutable. And when nothing is sacred, then who's safe? That's because that's ultimate, part of the social ultimate, contract. That's right. That's, that's, is to guarantee the safety of those who do not have power, who or to guarantee the safety of the weak, which I know Nietzsche would hate. Yeah. But that's part of the social contract. It's so that we can, you know, have our wives and raise our babies. That's correct. It's uh, it's it's the only call. It's the only way that peace and stability exists is through that social contract. And if that social contract is founded upon something that is mutable, sand as it were, then we're all in danger. If not today, temporarily so. Yeah. One day. I do recognize that, practically speaking. It is sand in a sense, but it's not the concept that is sand. Yeah. Whether it's an immutable truth or not, it's people's belief in it as immutable. Oh, well, is what is sand. Oh, you're absolutely. Oh, well, that goes back to, and you might remember this from Game of Thrones. Uh, George R. R. Martin. This came right from the book. Uh, Varys is talking to, uh, to Tyrion at one point. He says, "You know what is power?" He says, "Power is not." A thing. It's what we believe to be the. Th- to, it's where where we believe it resides. The, that's the only way it is there. We have it, everything else is just shadow on the wall. And he says, "And a very small man can cast very a very Aristotelian, uh, very much so. Yes, yes, correct. And that's that's Martin in his in his uh, narrative genius for laying that out there, because he uses the image of uh, a, a a a bishop, a king, and a and a mercenary are all in a room, and you're told. How do you tell which one is which? Well, that's my office. Yeah. And and you're you're going and you tell the one you tell the other two to kill the one to kill the other one who lives and who dies, whoever has the most power, perceived most power lives, right? And who would that be? Of course, he doesn't answer the question because that is the question. The answer itself is it's power. Whoever believes is the most powerful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and whoever is willing to use his agency. Well, no, it's, his, it's, it's his not even that willing necessarily. willing to use his power. It's whichever one the others believe mm-hmm. is the most willing. That's right. The other two. Two oh, of them yeah. have to be willing to believe one is more powerful than they are. Yeah. Because if they believe they're all equal, then they all die. Interesting. That's very interesting, yeah. That's what Martin was trying to say, and that's very yeah. human in many respects yeah. about that yeah. nature of power. And uh, and while I agree that, that it is sand in, in that sense... I think it's a dangerous thing to point that out. Yeah. It, See, that, and I guess maybe that's where I, I have the biggest problem with some of the, the things. Not problem with, I think he's wrong necessarily, yeah. but as far as it being uh, useful, yeah. uh, not that I'm a utilitarian, but if you start pointing these things out, things get really dangerous. Well, then ultimately, doesn't every revolution begin that way? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's kind of where this, you know... But you know, I'm against revolutions in general. Uh, I mean, I like the one 200 and some odd years ago, don't get me wrong. But all the rest of them are right out. All the rest of them are right out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's exactly what he's talking about. And bearing in mind, this is pre-French Revolution, so he has... And pre-American Revolution, pre-American, more or yeah. less. Because he dies yeah. in 76, so it's yeah. really... Uh, well, yeah, he's was, had, he's come up with these ideas before. Long I mean, before that. Yeah. So it's really... Yeah, it, it, it can be subversive. Very yeah. much so, because as soon as the society breaks down in sufficient numbers, then then all of a sudden the dynamics change. Well, and this he is was a, he was very much though in favor of the break with the colonies. He supported that's American. Like, yeah, he did. He did. But right. He, but when he's writing all this, there's 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 you know he's writing this in the, in the 1750s. Yeah, and I don't think what we were discussing here is incompatible with that. No, no. Uh, but you know, the whole idea though that that it's, it's dangerous because it foments revolution. Uh, in many ways, uh, you could tie anarchy, anarchist thoughts and philosophies to him, and uh, oh yeah, in not necessarily a straight line. Because uh, I don't think anything goes in a straight line. No, it's a, well, yeah, you'd have to stop at Nietzsche first. Yeah, you got to stop at Nietzsche because, first. Yeah, yes, Nietzsche correct. is, is yeah. pulling some of this. I, I um, readily, have which is odd because that. Nietzsche will also lead you into a, a little bit of foundation for fascism, uh, which is he probably is, one of the he, most opposite things to anarchy. Well, I mean, he's pulling the utilitarian aspects, which have their roots in Hume. Yeah, that uh, he's putting the two, Nietzsche is putting those two things together there, and and I do want to mention too that when he's writing all this stuff. This is during Jacobite periods, so he is he is he's experiencing, experiencing these things. Yeah, he's, he's experiencing some. So he some knows tough. that uh, when the social contract again, it's a Lockean phrase, breaks down, when we stop agreeing with each other, then bad things That's happen. That's when you have again. civil war. That's when you have yeah. civil, which ultimately is what the Jacobites were. It was just a smaller scale than what Hobbes yeah. had uh, experienced. Right. Yeah, and he he was not enthusiastic about Jacobite rebellions. Um, and it felt that was factionalism. Um, yeah. But I just, I, going through all this, I, I find there's a lot here to study because he's hard to dismiss because he starts with this idea of, you know, human nature, then the history of Britain, but then so much of what we view as positive in a modern society, he's predating. Absolutely, he's understanding monetary policy before. Yeah, we didn't talk about his economics. He was uh, yeah, yeah so, and Adam Smith and he were buddies. Yeah, so that's you know they're contemporaries and, so, and personal friends. Yeah, so, so there's a lot of that influence. See, him. And well, a lot of people will dismiss him now just because of that. Well, well, see, Smith and Hume and Newton were all contemporaries and were well known to when each did other. Newton die. Uh, later, I, 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 you should not be able to ask me. Yeah, I, I, I can't always think of Luke, Newton as, as late 1600s more than early 1700s. No, they're they're all buddies. Yeah, and they're all influencing each other, and they're all maybe it's because of the long hair and dress that the they're all pushing on That's this right. out. You know, this pushing this this new knowledge that they're coming up with. But Hume is again very much an influence in saying to Madison. And these other writings, um, yeah, and what they're doing, and I find that part of it very fascinating. Yeah, I don't very think we study. did justice to, to that aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. A Newton lot of what I've seen in his older. quotes and, and writing about him, and just what we've talked about here, and what little I've read, granted, 
um, I, I think he's got a, a lot of basis for modern uh, uh, yeah. psychological thought. Yeah, very much so. He predates all that a yeah. lot, and a lot of that scientific start starts with him as an underpinning. He, they're kind of he's kind of like the direction that he tells them to go. And they follow that, adding the scientific method into it. Ironically, that you know Newton helps develop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah they very much in favor of this idea of you know individual liberty. That private property is is a good thing. That it, that it leads to you know industry and fairness in life, um, it, fair trade, and um, again this monetary idea of, of what credit and all these things end up being, these all are, they're starting at a Hume and Adam Smith point. So he's, he's very much, yeah. very well, much, very cool, influential. He's built on stuff. earlier writers, even as far back as Aquinas. Absolutely. I mean, he is, uh, it's the, hard to remember that sometimes, but Aquinas, actually, a lot of mercantilism thought mm-hmm has its beginnings in Aquinas. Yeah. But which is another great reason to, to love Thomas Aquinas. Well, absolutely. That's right. And it's yeah. it's it's kinda it's kinda interesting that our seminarian. Huge on Thomas Aquinas. Excellent. Yes. That's what I told him. That's it's right. Like, you know, you cannot go wrong with keep that. Keep that. It'll be helpful yes. for you. Yeah. Well folks, well if we pummeled the expired equine. Yes, yeah. we've actually gone about five minutes over our, our allotted one hour. You know, yeah. and, and again we here we are in the middle of this taffy pole. Right. Because we had to go back there, didn't we? Arguing for truth. It's That's where right. I, where I, I, you know, it's just where I was the moment I went through this material, and and I'm still there. Is this is super stuff? It really yeah. is. It's That's really, really neat. Oh, I agree. I and, agree. And, and and there's a lot here, I think, to there like. Is. And and when you think him through, you're like, well, yeah, of course, of course we are. But how does that then? And and again, most people probably don't have these issues. But, you know, we're these, these nerds who have grown up with this idea of Spock as this great well, I end point to, to aspire to, this being of logic and this being of reason. See, where are we then? See, I don't think Spock is the ideal. I think Kirk is the ideal. That's, That's the whole point. That's right. Because Kirk is the melding... To use a phrase, yes. uh, between Spock and McCoy, McCoy. That's, that's, he that, is the that great reasoned genius. applier of passion. That's correct, and that's I think the problem with with focusing uh, a the lot. passion using the logic. Yeah, I think that's kind of the problem with with that Hume is struggling to to grab. He's just trying to grapple, and he can't quite do it. It appears. I've not read everything, obviously. So, obviously, he's right. trying to do an either or. It's a both and. That's right. Ultimately, it's, it's, it's a it's both the fusion and. of the two. Yeah. Uh, that's and I don't the, think it matters which one you start with because you can't do without both. Yeah, because the Enterprise is nothing without McCoy, but it's also nothing without Spock. Right. You have to have both. Right. You have to have, and and, and Hume, I, I just love that we've compared this great philosopher David Hume to. Dr. Leonard McCoy. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I think that's, that you might be... You pointed ears we did. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, it, in a way, it's, it's very accurate, though, because, you know, McCoy represents humanity at its best. 
That's right. Yes. He also represents humanity in its worst in a way because he is all about the passion, about emotions. <coughs> uh, what what Spock would term superstitions and or what, what sentiment. is sentiment? Yeah, sentiment. Uh, sens- yeah. Sensuality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, your passions um, will be your undoing, Doctor. Right. But he's but he's presented though as the 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 good mm-hmm. application of passions. Yeah. Whereas the bad guys are the ones that are the bad applications of passion, and often. Uh, but not always, but often without reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the bad guys are often passion without reason. But the ultimate good guy, Kirk, is passion and reason represented by Spock and McCoy. Or seamlessly McCoy and Spock. Me- seamlessly melded. Yes. Because he, he does both very well, as need be. Which is what, in my opinion, makes Picard the lesser captain. I would agree. Because he does not, you know, he's just assumed to be automatically superior. Mm-hmm. To somebody like Kirk, it's an arrogance. It and, is, and that's one of the things I don't like about Picard. There's an arrogance in his own inherent superiority, which Q points out quite often. Yes, that's, which, is, which is surprising that that the writers were uh, self aware enough to realize they're writing Picard this way as a good. Yeah. But point, yet pointing out that, yeah, you're an arrogant ass at the same time. Yeah, which, which Maybe I, that's why he gets the comeuppances that he does on the show. Well, it makes him also that much more interesting. It does. Because you've got to be, you cannot be, a marble man is really easily shattered. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But, you know, to me, Kirk is the better captain because yeah. he's a better melding of the there two. There always was kind of a marble Robert E. Lee sort of quality to Picard. Yeah, that that makes no mistakes and does no wrong and has no evil thoughts and does not is intending to do the right thing. Of course, we know that Robert E. Lee did none of those things quite often, mm-hmm. but that's how the myth was portrayed. And right. Sometimes that's how right. the myth was portrayed with Picard. Uh, and I'll and I'll finish out with this. I know that I don't know if you have seen the fi- season finale of Strange New Worlds. Yes, I have. You have. You have probably not watched it. I'm telling you, listeners, if you haven't watched it, it's the best Star Trek that's ever been put out, and that's high praise for me. Yes. Until this, the Orville was the best Trek out there. Yeah. Strange New Worlds has finally eclipsed Orville. The, but the Orville is still a close second. Oh, it's opinion. excellent. There's no question. Uh, but I will say that the ending of that season finale speaks to this very issue because in an alternate future, Pike is in Kirk's place when the Romulans uh, attack Outpost 4. And because Pike is quick to go to the negotiation he's more, versus the action. He's more Picard-like. Very much more Picard-like. He basically dooms the Federation to decades of bloody war. Yes. He's and committing the Enterprise, the yesterday's Enterprise uh, mistake. That's right. Uh, not, it's not the same mistake, but the result is the same. That's uh, right. Decades of war that you will probably end up losing. That's correct. All because you needed that man of action who is perfectly melded between these two poles yep. in that place. And Pike cannot do that. Nope. I did love Pike in the red uniform, though. Yes, it was nice, though. It yes. with, the Admiral, sharp. with the Admiral pin. With too. the Admiral pin, yes. So yes. that's that's an alternate version that, you know, things may not work out that way. But anyway, sorry. That is excellent. It's excellent. I mean, we're... You need to watch it. David Hume to Star Trek. We did it. Yes, yep. very much And we so. threw in a Star Wars reference that... Francis did not get, but that's all right. No, that's okay. No, I just uh, I, we'll, we'll talk about my issues with Star Wars in another episode. Uh, so what's next, my brother? Uh, well, we are going to talk pop culture next time. Uh, we might talk Star Wars a little. I don't know, but we're actually going to talk about the franchise, another Deep Space franchise uh, in the movies. But not just another Deep Space. Not just another one. They mean something here. That's right. Uh, in space, no one can hear you scream. 
That should be all you need to know if you're a fan of this particular... Or as Martin has titled it, In Space No One Can Hear You Podcast. <laughs> That's right, yeah, I'll, we'll leave that, that that very good stuff. Yeah, we're going to talk about the Alien franchise. Uh, and and it's, it's goodness, it's badness, it's groundbreakingness, it, our issues with it, uh, our fun with it, and uh, it w- I'm sure it will be a definite... Love it's a cultural fest. touchstone that needs to be discussed. That's correct. And hey, there you we go. do that very well. So be here next episode. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week, same snake time, same otter channel.